Well, let's study God's word together. I suppose you gathered from the hymns that were selected that we're going to study about the incarnation today. And uh, hark the herald angels sing. It doesn't get much more theologically uh, precise and appropriate than that wonderful hymn on the incarnation. Such great theology there. And it prepares us well for where we are in Hebrews chapter 2. I want to ask you to follow with me as I read Hebrews 2. I'm going to begin in verse 9 just to sort of prepare us uh, for the context, even though the sermon will begin in verse 10. But I want you to understand where we left off last week. Hebrews chapter 2, follow with me, verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. This is the word of God. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of our God endures forever. The story is told of evangelist Billy Graham. You know him. You've read about him. You're familiar with him. It was a number of years ago. He was walking down the streets in Harrisburg, North Carolina, and he was on his way to visit a sick woman. He was going to go visit her and pray with her and minister the gospel to her. And on his way to her home, as he was walking down the road, he had a letter in his hand that he needed to mail. It was a very urgent piece of correspondence. And so he was lost and he had to find the post office. And so Billy Graham found a young man by the road. And Billy Graham said to the young man, young man, tell me where the post office is. And so the boy said, well, you go down the road and you turn left and gave him the directions on how to get to the post office. Billy Graham said thank you to the young man, and he said, young man, I want you to come to the church tonight because I'm going to preach, and I'm going to tell people on how they can get to heaven when they die. Young man, I want you to be there. And the young boy very politely replied, sir, I think I'll pass this time. If you don't even know your way to the Harrisburg post office... How would I come to hear you preach to give me the way to heaven? Billy Graham had a great laugh with that. And, of course, a story like that reminds us that aren't we thankful that our confidence in finding the way to heaven is not found in a mere man? Our confidence in finding the way to heaven is not found in a fallen man. Our confidence in getting to heaven is certainly not found in our own ideas. It's not found in our own achievements and what you and I could ever do for God. Truly, the passage today that I just read from Hebrews chapter 2 shows us the way to heaven. 
It shows us the way to heaven. And in the amazing plan of God, the way to heaven is through the God-man. The way to heaven is through the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is truly God and the one who is at the same time truly man. Truly, really, genuinely incarnate. The one who is the genuine man. It is the mystery of all mysteries that that God, infinite God, would clothe himself. He would take upon himself real, genuine human flesh. Isn't that amazing? I mean, who can understand that? We sang it earlier. The words from Charles Wesley, veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us as man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Ponder this, the the limitations of, of genuine humanity in his incarnation. Jesus can relate to you. He can. He can relate to you in your life. He can relate to you in your afflictions. He is the Son of God. And if you are a believer today and you are in Jesus Christ, guess what? You are sons of God because you're in Him. And so you, together with Jesus, can call God Father. You can call Him Father. What? What mystery? What mystery is there? What beauty is there? What security is there in this? What wonder is there in this? I mean, I suppose somebody could stumble into church, maybe be here today, and you think, no, I don't need that. You're you're, you're fine in yourself, and you're fine in your own intellect, and you're fine in your own human achievements, and you like living life for yourself, and you think, I don't need Jesus. But here's my question for you. Where else are you going to go? Because you're not going to take yourself to heaven. And nothing in this world can ever take you to heaven. So where are you going to go to find the way to eternal life? But Jesus, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Now, remember, as we've been studying the book of Hebrews together, just to remind you and refresh you so that we're all caught up to speed together. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, so we have all affectionately called him Octor. Octor is the Latin word for originator or author. So Octor has told us in Hebrews chapter 1, the deity of Jesus. He is better. He is worthy of praise. He deserves all worship because he's God. Chapter 2, now Octor tells you of the humanity of Christ. The humanity of Christ and the massive implications of this doctrine. But don't miss what Octor is doing. Uh, try Try to wrap your mind around this with me. In the incarnation of Jesus, in the sufferings of Jesus, in the humanity of Jesus, get this. It's not contrary to his greatness. In other words, the humanity of Jesus, with all of the limitations of humanity, it doesn't detract from him being better. It actually is part of his greatness. 
It actually enhances his greatness. This is how Jesus saves men. This is how God saves humanity, that he had to be made like us himself to live a life like us, to die a death we should have died, to take the judgment of God that you and I deserve, to rise from the dead in triumph. Only Jesus. Only Jesus, the God-man, could do this. What I want to do is I want to walk you through Hebrews chapter 2 this afternoon, the next section that we have before us in this sermon that Octor has given to the early church. And I want to show you why the incarnation, meaning the incarnation, God taking on human flesh, why is the incarnation part of God's plan? I mean, you read Hebrews chapter 1, and we see the deity of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, the humanity of Christ. It's important. It's vital. We have to understand why the incarnation is part of God's plan. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you five reasons. And that's going to be our study this afternoon. Why is the incarnation of Jesus Christ part of God's plan? Why did Jesus... Why did he have to clothe real, genuine deity with humanity? Why? In other words, maybe to simplify it, why Christmas? Why is it that important? Why is the virgin birth, the humanity of Jesus, that important? And let me give you the reasons, and let's begin with the first. In order to bring you to glory, God had to become man, number one, to bring you to glory. And you see it right here in your Bible. Look at verse 10. It's right here. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It's an amazing thought to think that God's goal and God's passion and God's desire is to save sinners, to carry you all the way to glory. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Listen to Jude, verse 24 and 25, same thing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and he is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. What is God's goal? What is God's passion? It is to save sinners and to carry sinners to glory, all the way to glory. He began the work, and he'll perfect that work. Can anything separate you from the love of God in Christ, Romans 8 says? Nothing at all. And notice how verse 10, back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 tells us right here in our text In Hebrews 2.10, Octor is going to tell us exactly this very truth. He says, it was fitting for God, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. Isn't it great how the preacher just says, let me just remind you of who God is and what he does. 
It is fitting for our God. The, the purpose of all things is for God, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things. He's the creator. And his goal and his desire and his passion is to bring many sons to glory. And the writer says in verse 10, that was fitting. That was fitting. What does that mean? That means that it is a fitting, wonderful, appropriate plan of God to redeem humanity through the suffering, humanity, and substitution of Jesus. But don't miss it in verse 10. God had a plan. It was fitting for God and his plan, on account of whom are all things, and by means are all things, and God's goal is to bring many sons to glory. Now, don't miss the theology of that, and I want to flesh that out with you. This teaches the security of sonship. The security of sonship. Now, if you're a Christian today, you understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you understand that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are united to Jesus. And so because you are in Christ, you are safe. You are secure. To use the language of the New Testament that the writers love to bring out, you're adopted. You're adopted. All redeemed believers are sons. Not because you've picked God, not because you've chosen God, not because you prayed a prayer, not because you walked an aisle. You're a son of God by virtue of being united with Christ. Ephesians 1 says that you are adopted as children of God because God predestined you. We read in Romans 8 that you are enabled by the Holy Spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. It is the Spirit of God who enables that, and he assures that sonship adoption work in your heart. How do you become a son? How does, how does someone go from being a, a child of the devil to being a child of God? How does that work? John 1 tells us to all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, God gives the right to become children of God. You know what that means? If God's desire is to bring many sons into glory, this is good news for me and you. You have a new identity Christian, it doesn't matter where you've come from. Christian, it doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter your marital status, how many children you have, where you might live, the kind of house you might have. What matters is your identity in Jesus Christ. And believer, your identity is an unchanging, fixed, permanent state. I'm his. I'm a son of the living God. I'm adopted in his family. And look at verse 10. I want to bring out the verb. Look at verse 10. It was fitting for God, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing. Do you see that verb in your Bible, the word bring? Interesting. There's all kinds of verbs that Octor could have used in bringing this point across. But the point of bringing is the idea that there is a great security here. God is bringing you. God is carrying you. There is nothing more you need to do to secure your own soul. God has done it. He's done it. You have the assurance and you have the confidence 
And you have the promise and you have the hope that my God, on account of whom are all things and by means of whom are all things, he knows me and he's adopted me and he's bringing me as a son to glory. Hear that today. Nothing that happened this week will ever change that. Nothing that happens tonight, tomorrow, this upcoming week will ever alter that. The devil can't alter that. You can't alter that. When God saves, he delivers, he protects, he secures, he brings many sons all the way to glory. Christian, why is the incarnation part of God's plan? Because his desire, his decree, his passion, not only was to save you from your sin, but to bring you all the way to glory. The incarnation was essential for that. I love the way Matthew Henry puts it. Such great wisdom here. Matthew Henry said, believer, you need to hear this. All believers are sons. All believers whether you've been a believer for an hour or an hour for 50, or a believer for 50 years. Every believer is a son, a child of God. And though we as believers might appear as few, boy, there's so many people around us that are not believers, we might think, man, are, are there many of us? Remember in verse 10, God is bringing many sons to glory. There are actually many that God has saved. We know in Revelation 7, it is an innumerable multitude. All the sons of God, all the elect, will and shall be brought to glory. And all shall be unified in heart and spirit and voice to worship the Lamb forever. Why? Because God the Father by his power is bringing many sons to glory. So if the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, like Psalm 46 says, if Satan rises up against you to bring trials into your life, like Job 1 and 2, if all the the angelic forces in the invisible heavenly places rise up against you, nothing can alter the protection of your soul. That God has sent his son and he became a man. Why? Number one. To bring you to glory. Hallelujah. What a great God. Let me give you another reason. Why is the incarnation important? Continue with verse 10 with me. Number two, he became a man. Number two, to relate to you in suffering. Why is the incarnation important? Why Christmas? Why the virgin birth? Why did God have to become a man? Number two, to relate to you in your suffering. Now, do you see it here in verse 10? It's in your Bible. It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. What did God do? He had to perfect the author of their salvation. How did he do this? Through sufferings. Remember that angelic announcement to Joseph, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their, from their sins. Now, we have to identify this in verse 10. 
When, when, when God brings many sons to glory, the text says that he perfects the author of their salvation. We know that Jesus is perfect, so we know that he had no sin at all. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us that Jesus has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So Jesus did not have to become perfect because he was imperfect before. That's not what the text means. What does it mean in Hebrews 2.10 when God had to perfect Jesus? Well, it's not that he had a moral imperfection. It's that he had to have the fullness of experience. He, he He had to have the fullness of experience in relating to us in suffering. In other words, Jesus had to be perfected. What do you mean? He had to have the full experience of relating to you and me in deep suffering. It's not that he was a sinner. It's not that he was morally imperfect. Of course he was perfect. God the Father had to complete the plan of the experience of suffering of the incarnate Son of God. So, verse 10, God perfects the author of our salvation through suffering. Now, look in your Bible at verse 10. Do you see in your Bible, I have author in the New American Standard. If you have the ESV, you have the word founder. He's the founder of our salvation. If you're here today with the NIV, you have the pioneer. That's a great translation. More on that in a little bit. If you have the King James, you have the word captain. He's the captain of our salvation. And other English translations translate it originator. He's the source of our translation. Ponder all that. Kind of wrap your arms around all that. He's the pioneer. He's the captain. He's the founder. He's the author. He's the originator. This is Jesus. The word, best translated, could be that of a hero. Hero. The word in Greek was used most of the time in ancient Greek literature for a hero. Uh, The hero is one who goes ahead of you. He goes ahead of you and he paves the way for you. And he suffers and he relates to you. And then he succeeds and he's the victor and he's the champion against all foes. And you can point to him and say, he's my hero. He he delivered me. He did what I couldn't do for myself. He's the hero. That's Jesus. What is God's plan? God had to send his son To be the incarnate man. Why? In order to be your hero. Your hero. Maybe you could illustrate it like this. Imagine a mountain climber. Imagine a mountain climber who's going ahead of you, scaling the mountain, and he's going ahead of others, and then he's extending the rope to others who are climbing behind him. Why? He's paving the trail first, and he's helping you along. Or maybe another illustration might work. Think of a, of a pioneer who's, who's blazing a trail. He's paving a new trail. And he's got a new path for you not to figure out on your own, but for you to follow his lead. He's the hero. He's the pioneer. He's the champion. He is the conqueror. He is the one whom God sent. Get this. 
as the hero of your salvation. Real quick little footnote, pause. When you share your testimony, is Jesus the hero of your testimony? Do, 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 you, do you brag on him? Do you boast in him? Do you, do you make it known of what the hero has done for you? Or is it, why are you a Christian? Well, I did this, I did this, I've done this, I've done this, I've chosen this, I did this, I, I, I. Octor, Octor wants the believers to know that yes, Jesus had to be a man. Number one, to bring you to glory. Number two, to relate to you in your sufferings. Sufferings? Sufferings? Not only does it mean that he suffered, he did. Not only does it mean, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, that Jesus Christ set an example for you to follow in his steps because he suffered for you, 1 Peter 2.21. But Christian, hear this. It's like Jesus, your captain, can relate to you in your suffering, and he pioneered, he blazed a trail for you, suffering to the fullest for you as your hero, and yet he blazed the way for you to suffer well as you follow him. Away with all that health, wealth, prosperity stuff. Jesus doesn't call his people to an easy life. An easy life of no suffering. No, John Owen said, your afflictions will come as you follow your hero. John Owen said, you need to remember that your sufferings are necessary and unavoidable on your way to glory. John Owen said, your sufferings are useful and they are profitable to make you like Jesus. John Owen said, your sufferings are purposeful and they are honorable because Jesus went before you and suffered as your hero. They are beneficial to make you Christ-like. He never said it'd be easy. God never said it'd be easy. And drinking the cup of God's wrath on the cross was not easy. Suffering is tough. It can be difficult. But you have a hero, an author of your salvation. You have a pioneer that you can run to. And you can know that my God became a man. Why? To relate to me in sufferings. Number three, if you're taking notes, why did Jesus have to become incarnate? Why did God have to become a man? As if it couldn't get any better. Number three, in order to call you brothers. Jesus had to become a man? Listen to this, listen. He calls you brother. He's not scowling at you. He's not cringing in sour anger toward you because you stumbled into sin again. He calls you brother. Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of Christ, Christ will be ashamed of him. But whoever confesses the son, the son will confess him before the father. 
Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32, whoever confesses Jesus before men, he will confess your name to the Father. Revelation 3, 5, whoever overcomes will be clothed in white. And get this, what an astonishing thought. Jesus will confess your name before the Father and all the holy angels. Whoa, what an amazing thought. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16 says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. And right here, look in verse 11. Look in your Bible, Hebrews 2, 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. What an amazing verse. Now, verse 11 begins, he who sanctifies, that's Jesus. That's the positional work of salvation. He made you holy. It's a done deal. He died for you. He secured your soul. He took your sin. He paid the debt. He made you holy. Are you? How else will you have a secure position in Christ? Verse 11, it is this Savior who sanctifies. He makes you holy positionally. And then those who are being sanctified, that's you and me. We're believers. Isn't that neat? Do you see the the twofold nature of that? Number one, it's progressive. We are being sanctified. Aren't we works in progress here today, right? Nobody's arrived. Nobody's glorified. Nobody's sinless yet. Nobody will be until we get to glory. There's a progressive nature to our growth. We don't teach sinless perfectionism. And if somebody claims to be sinlessly perfect, he shows that he's not perfect because he has said that he is without sin and makes God a liar. First John 1 says, There's a progressive nature to our growth. But there's also the passive nature. Did you see it in verse 11? Those who he sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. What does that mean? It means that you are receiving the sanctifying work of God. God is at work molding you, chiseling you, fashioning you, shaping you into the image of the Son. And refining metals means you have to go through the fire for some of the dross to be removed. But that's what God does when he sanctifies his people. And as he does this, he says we are all from one I think in the context, we are from one Father. That that Jesus who saves and we who are being saved, we and Jesus are together from one Father. There's one Father. Isn't that amazing to think about? Jesus isn't ashamed to call you a brother. Christ relates to you because he's a man like you you. He calls you brother. But, but hold on. Jesus does not call everyone brothers, right? I mean, not everybody in the world is a brother of Jesus, but only those whom he has made holy through his cross are being made holy progressively. And Jesus says, they are my brothers. The Muslim 
is not my brother. The Roman Catholic who believes that mass atones for his sin and that he will be justified by his own work is not my brother, nor is he Jesus' brother. Who are the brothers? Take your Bible real quick. Go back to Mark chapter 3. I want to show you this because this is a remarkable account in the life of Jesus. And I want you to see it. It's the end of Mark chapter 3. Super important, really clear. And you need to ask the question today, does he call me brother? Mark 3. Jesus has called the twelve. After spending a night in prayer, he appointed them as apostles. He commissioned them and sent them out to preach. And then soon after that, Jesus was accused of driving out demons by the power of Satan. So then at the end of the chapter, Mark 3.31, the text says, Then the mother, Mary, and his brothers arrived, and they were standing outside, and they sent word to him, and they called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Okay, that's natural family, right? That's, that's his mother, Mary, and the blood brothers. Verse 33, Jesus answered, and he said, Who? who? Who, who are my mother and brothers? Who, who, who's in the true family of God? Verse 34, looking around at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. What a great truth. What a simple teaching that the spiritual bond in Christ is tighter than the biological Bonds that you may have with brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. So back to Hebrews chapter 2, who are the brothers? The brothers, those that are in the family of God, are those who have been sanctified. We've been saved. We've been positionally made holy. We are being sanctified because we hear the word of God and we do the will of God, Mark 3. But get this. Just like a a child, just like a child in your home might not always act like his father. He might do some foolish, childish, sinful things, but he's still the father's child. So we are holy because of the righteousness of Christ, which has been credited to us. We are in the family of God through simple faith in Jesus Christ and all of the perfect sufficient merit credited to us. Even though we sin, even though we progressively are growing, but we still stumble, we are still in the family of God. And hear this, Jesus is still not ashamed to call you brothers. Man, that that ought to rock our world. You can go to a high school, and there's plenty of people who are ashamed to associate with certain weird kids. But Jesus is not ashamed. Believer, to call you brother. That's pretty radical. That's awesome. You can almost, when when Octor is preaching this in the original setting to the congregation, 
You can almost imagine how silent that would have been. I can call the Messiah? I can call the God-man brother? And he calls me brother? He's not ashamed to call me brother? You can almost hear somebody say, prove it. And Octor says, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked that. Because he's going to give you three scriptures now to prove it. And what I want to do for the remaining time that we have is give you a couple of more reasons why Jesus had to become a man as we look at these proofs. So why, did, why is the incarnation essential? Why did it have to happen? Number one, to bring you to glory. Number two, to relate to you in suffering. Number three, to call you brothers. Let me give you number four. Get this. This is astonishing. Number four, Jesus had to become a man to worship and to trust God together with you. He had to become a real man. Why? To worship God, just like you do. And to trust in God, just like you do. It's like the preacher said, he's not ashamed to call you brothers. You can almost hear somebody raise his hand and say, preacher, prove it. Prove it. I mean, what are, the, what are the proofs of the amazing reality of this? How do I know that Jesus is my brother? How do I know he's not ashamed to call me brother? How do I know that my salvation is secure? Why is this so important? Number one, the first proof that he's going to go to is Psalm 22. We read it earlier. Look in Hebrews 12. Let me just read the text here. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 2 Verse 12, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now, everybody acknowledges Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm. Everybody acknowledges that it points to Messiah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're they're casting lots for my clothing and on and on it goes. In that psalm, we learn that Jesus, the Messiah, says, I will proclaim, Father, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. It's like Jesus is saying, I will be the teacher of the people. I will be the teacher. It's like Jesus is proclaiming God's character to his brothers. What a thought. That Jesus, our brother, Jesus, the God-man, is willingly and patiently and persistently teaching you and me the nature of God, the attributes of God, the character of God, the mind of God, the will of God, the word of God. Jesus is our teacher. He taught the apostles and the apostles teach us through the word. What a thought. I will teach. I will proclaim. I will declare your name to my brethren. And then in your Bible, look at the rest of verse 12. Look at Hebrews 2, 12. And then in the words of Messiah, what does Jesus say? In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This is the the meeting of the believers. 
It's like Jesus is saying, I will sing hymns of praise to God together with my brothers in the congregation of believers. Have you ever thought of that? That when we're singing together, Jesus is the music director? That when we're singing together, Christ is singing praise to the Father as if he is spiritually gathered with us? I mean, what a motivation to sing loudly because he's singing. What a motivation to to sing praise to God because he's singing. He's our, our brother. He's our worship leader. He is the chief worship leader. And he's singing hymns of praise to God. So should we. So should we. I mean, talk about a motivation to sing with zeal. Talk talk about a motivation to lift the voice loudly because our brother who relates to us is in the midst of the congregation and he teaches his people and he sings hymns of praise to God. So should we. So should we. But not only does Octor go to Psalm 22, to show about the humanity of our Lord that he had, he had to worship. He had the delight of worshiping. But also, look in verse 13 of our text in Hebrews 2. The text says, and again, I will put my trust in him. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 17. There's a lot going on in that section to to simplify it and boil it down. Isaiah the prophet is teaching about Emmanuel, God with us. And just like Isaiah the prophet had to trust in the Lord, so these words in verse 13 come from the lips of Jesus. I will put my trust in him. Why that quotation? Guess what, Christian? Because as a man, you need to put your trust in him. When we're struggling, when things are hard, when things don't make sense, when we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, what do we do? Put your trust in the Lord. Wait, wait, wait on God. Guess what? Your older brother, Jesus, did the same thing. Somebody said, oh, he's God. He is, but he was also man. Well, of course he's God. He, he, he could have just easily done it. Yeah, but he's truly man. He's truly man. With the limitations of real humanity like me and you. And yet here's verses 12 and 13. It's like Octor is saying, why did Jesus have to become a man? Why the incarnation? So that this one would worship God with you. So that he would sing hymns of praise to the Father together with you. And that he would trust God together with you. He's your pioneer. He's your forerunner. He's your champion. He's your model and your example. Why the incarnation? Why is it important? Number one, to bring you to glory. Number two, to relate to you in suffering. Number three, to call you brothers. Number four, to worship and trust God with you. Let me give you just one more. One more, very briefly, and it's found right here in verse 13, at the end of verse 13, and it's this. The incarnation is important. Number five, 
in order to receive you as a gift from the Father. The incarnation is essential so that Jesus would receive you as a gift from the Father. Boys and girls, boys and girls love Christmas. They love New Year's. They love birthdays. They love when they get a a box and they get the wrapping paper and they get the bow and, and they open it and the excitement and the gift. Guess what? Jesus was given a gift. And it's it's found right here in verse 13 of our text. It's quoting Isaiah 8. And again, look at it, the end of verse 13. Behold, I and the children whom God has given to me. The children? Jesus said, I and the children. And, And I'm with the children whom the Father has given to me. Why the incarnation? Because John chapter 17 gives a bit more clarity about what this means for you to be given to the Son. Listen to this. John 17 verse 3, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, Jesus prays, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your Word. What's the theology of this? Get this and be blown away by it. At some point in eternity past, like many, many, many years ago before you and I were born, in the perfect love and plan and sovereign election of God, there was an agreement, there was a plan among the persons of the Godhead. An agreement, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in this plan, God the Father decreed to elect and predestine some. And there's many particular ones. And he gave them to the Son. And at some point before the world was, the Father gave the Son the mission, go redeem them. It's going to require you to take on human flesh. It's going to require you to live a righteous life. It's going to require you to suffer and bleed and die and be rejected and take my wrath that they deserve for their sin. But I will vindicate you and I will raise you And you will be seated at my right hand in the heavenly places forever. That's this inter-Trinitarian agreement that we are talking about here that Octor is utterly blown away with. Hebrews 2 verse 13. It's like Jesus is saying, I and the children whom God has given to me. Jesus had to become a man to receive you as the gift from the Father. The Father chose you. He elected you. He predestined you. But Jesus took on human flesh to procure, to achieve, to die for, and to save you. 
ponder the astonishing truth that we are children of God. That's what he says. Verse 13, I am the children. We are children. Second of all, notice the reality that we are given to Christ from the Father. And you and I are left to think, why me? I mean, in eternity past, before you and I were born, before the world was created, why did God pick me? Why did he pick you? And why did he give you to the Son? And why not your neighbor? Why not your coworker? Why you? Amazing that we are a gift to Christ. We are not presented to the Father without Christ, our mediator. In other words, he is our access. He is our introduction. He is our only means to come to the Father. We are joined to Christ and separated from the world. What an amazing thought that Christian hear this again, if I can maybe belabor this point for a moment. Christian, you are a child of God because you are united to Christ. And as God looks at you, he sees you through the Son. And therefore, Christian, you are a pleasing sight to the Father. Did you hear that? You are a pleasing sight to the Father. That's not a self-esteem statement. It's not about you and what you've done for God. It is a statement about Christ and his glory and what he's done for you. Children of God. We are sons of God. What? What security? What protection there is? That that Jesus calls me brother. But for all who are here, listen to this. All who are sons of God will hear these glorious words. All who are believers will hear these glorious words. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Enter into the kingdom. It's yours. But every unbeliever, just like the God who made every drop of rain in all of his power and wisdom, will say to the unbeliever, depart from me in his power, in his wisdom, in his might, and in his authority. And Jesus will say to the unbeliever, doesn't matter how prideful, doesn't matter how cool the guy thinks he was, doesn't matter how much he attained in this world, it's like Jesus will say to him, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Oh, how much better it is to be a son. Oh, how much better it is to be a son. Are you here today and... Do you know the joy of being a son, a child of God? Or maybe you're here today as a believer, but maybe you've not been well taught. And maybe you were taught, well, I can lose my salvation. Well, I really got to do something to keep myself saved. Oh, I really hope that God still loves me. Let these verses teach you. And let these verses remind you of the secure, protective love of Christ. 
Maybe, maybe you're here today and you're a growing believer, progressing in grace, you're maturing in holiness, you're walking with the Savior, and yet you have a bad day. Your heart is cold. Prayer seems to be a chore. You feel like your prayers bounce off the ceiling. Reading the Bible is not a delight, perhaps some morning for you. You need to hear afresh that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brethren. Because your soul security does not depend upon you. But your soul security depends upon what he has done for you. Look, there's no money, there's no relationship, there's no power, there's no control, there's no job, there's no family, there's no relationship, there's no fulfillment in this world that could ever give such comfort as Christ. But are you here today and you know nothing? Are you here today and you know nothing of this? You you, you don't know what it is for Jesus to be a brother, and he doesn't call you brother. Because according to Mark 3, you don't hear the word and do the will of the Father. You do your own will. What would God say to you? He would say, you must repent and believe the gospel. He would say, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Don't wait another day. You must get right with God. He would say, be reconciled to God today. Receive Christ. Trust in Him. Believe on the Lord. Give all that you are to Him. And this great God will accept you because of the merit of Christ. And God will look upon you through the work of Christ. What security and joy there is there. Much more could be said. I'll draw this to a close. The story is told. The story is told of a, of a king. He lived quite a number of centuries ago in the land of Persia. And the king was a humble man. He loved his people. He wanted to know how the people in his realm lived. And so he wanted to know their hardships. And so, interestingly enough, this king would often dress himself in the clothes of a working man or in the clothes of a beggar. The king would go to the homes of the poor, and he would knock on the homes of the poor, and and he would want to ask them questions and relate to them and understand their way of life. No one, no one out of all the homes that he visited ever thought that this one was their king. Nobody ever put it together. One time, the king visited a very, very poor man. He lived in a cellar. And this poor man ate terrible food, and this king ate the poor, terrible food with the poor beggar. And he spoke cheerful, kind words to the beggar, and then the king left after that. And and then later he visited the poor man again, many months later, and, and disclosed his identity to the poor man. And eventually he said, I am your king. I am your king, but I wanted to relate to you. I I wanted to understand you. I wanted to know you. The king thought that surely the beggar would ask for a, a gift 
Or maybe ask for money or ask for a favor. But, but he didn't. In fact, the beggar, the beggar said to the king, you left your palace in glory and you came to visit me in this dark, dreary place. You, you ate the poor beggar food, the man that I am. You, you, O king, have brought such gladness to my heart. To others, you give many rich gifts, but to me, you have given yourself. You know, the poor man got it. I don't need all the gifts. The king has given me himself. He came to me as one of us. And he understands me. Christ, our brother, has come to us. He has given us himself. He is better than the angels. He is better than anything this world has to offer. Jesus is your hero. He's the pioneer and the author of your salvation. And he's given himself to you forever. Forever. What a reason we have to rejoice that our Savior is not ashamed to call us brothers. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the scriptures from Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8, pointing to our Savior Jesus, who trusted in you, sang hymns to you. He is our pioneer, our hero, our forerunner, the author of our salvation. We thank you for the humanity of Christ. Thank you that he didn't just come and give a bunch of gifts. He came and gave himself. Thank you that we can rest our souls in him. Thank you that the door to heaven is thrown wide open to all who come to the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Merciful God, would you please encourage believers, strengthen believers in the firm, secure position of sonship that we currently enjoy. And for those who are here who are not believers, would you awaken them mercifully to new life? that they would stop living for themselves, that they would humble themselves before, before the cross, that they would look to Christ as the only hope and the only Savior, and that they would cry out with that one man in the Gospel of Luke who said, be merciful to me, the sinner. We thank you for our great Redeemer. We glory in him. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.